Speaking of Liberty by Llewellyn H. Rockwell, Jr. Copyright 2003 by the Ludwig von Mises Institute. Dedicated to Murray and Rothbard, scholar, teacher, gentleman. Introduction. A common response to a good article is to say to the author, you should write a book. I've heard this for years, but from what I've seen of such efforts, most articles should remain articles. Looking at the corpus of writing in the Austrian tradition, for more than a century ago, through the latest books brought out by the Mises Institute, there are more than enough books available containing systematic expositions of theory and history that need to be read and studied. There was nothing I could say systematically in a book-length treatment that would add to the articles I write weekly. Articles and books constitute separate literary genres, taking a different pace and designed for different purposes. The same is true of non-academic public speeches. They're not designed to give a systematic exposition of ideas, but rather to introduce ideas and apply them to the current moment in a way that holds people's attention. The prose takes a different form from the article or the book. It is more immediate and more rhetorical in the classical sense of that term. I've had the pleasure of delivering many of these over the years to students, supporters of the Mises Institute, financial professionals, and others. Now I've collected them with little change into a single volume. I've made no attempt to disguise the dated material, and thus some do refer to events of the Clinton years without reference to later events. The material on the current state of the economy is subject to withering with time. Some of the material on war predates the change in public sentiment after September 11, 2001, a date which has become something of a hinge of history in American foreign policy. But there are two senses in which the material itself will always remain relevant. First, the principles are always the same. Second, events tend to repeat themselves. I recently watched a video about the Federal Reserve that the Mises Institute made in the early 1990s. It described the recessionary environment of that time. Watching it again in 2003 seemed up to the minute. I've organized the speeches by topic, though there is plenty of overlap between sections. Economics is tied to politics, which leads to issues of war and peace, and back again. I've added neither footnotes to bibliographies, knowing that Mises.org and Google searches can instantly yield more references for further study than I could possibly add. Reading through all these, I find common themes. The corruptions of politics, the universality and immutability of the ideas of freedom, the centrality of sound money and free enterprise, the moral imperative of peace and trade, the importance of hope and tenacity in the struggle for liberty, and the need for everyone to join the intellectual fight. These are themes I hope to convey in my speeches over the years. Reading them is no substitute for keeping up with the news through short commentaries, and they are certainly no substitute for extensive reading in the scholarly literature. If someone asked me whether he should read this book or something by Ludwig von Mises or Murray and Rothbard, I wouldn't have to consider the question very long. It's always better to do deep study. And yet I find value in this genre, and I hope you do too. Mostly I hope you consider supporting the ideas that led me to write them and deliver them. Also, I've included two longer interviews that are a bit more personal. The marvel that is capitalism. This speech was given before the Adam Smith Club, Campbell University, Boys Creek, North Carolina, on April 4, 2002. Free market economics, of which the Austrian school is the preeminent exponent, asserts that every government intervention in the market generates consequences that are deleterious for prosperity and human liberty.
However much such interventions may assist one group in the short run, everyone is made worse off in the long run. Government intervention destabilizes economic life in artificial ways and ultimately does not work to bring about the results that its proponents claim to desire. Karl Menger, the founder of the Austrian School of Economics, was a firm believer in the, in the law of cause and effect. He believed that economic affairs could be analyzed in these terms as well. Menger's followers in this tradition of thought, including Ludwig von Mises and Murray and Rothbard, spelled out the implication of this idea for a huge range of issues that confront us on a daily basis in the world of economics and politics. They focused on universal principles that can be derived from the teaching of economics. The law of supply and demand, for example, cannot be repealed by any legislature or court. Government regulators can impose price ceilings, price floors, or limits to the size of firms like Microsoft, but economic law bites back by yielding shortages, surpluses, and reduced profitability. It is important that we think of economic life as an intricate global system of exchange, one that works without any central direction and which generates prosperity in its own form of order within the framework of liberty. This is what is sometimes termed the magic of the marketplace, and we should never underestimate its power. By looking south to Argentina, we can see how a failing economy, when thrown into shock by bad legislation and monetary policy, has destroyed the livelihoods of the entire population. We're not just talking about the earnings in people's stock portfolios. We're talking about whether mothers can afford to buy milk for their children, and whether the businesses that deliver milk have the freedom to be entrepreneurial and find the least costly methods to make such deliveries possible. When we speak of economics, we're talking about the health of society, and whether medical equipment is working and affordable, and whether the labor market is sufficiently free to permit everyone a place within the division of labor. People who dismiss the teachings of economics forget that many of the world's wars and ethnic slaughters began with economic intervention. Before ethnic warfare broke out in Yugoslavia in the 1990s, the country was afflicted by one of the most extreme hyperinflations in the history of the world. This literally destroyed the standard of living and helped turn a previously settled society into a killing field. If we look back at history, we can see that many wars began in trade disputes when governments attempted to reward some producers at the expense of others. This was the origin of the Civil War, for example. Even in our own times, the perception in the Muslim world that U.S.-U.N. sanctions against Iraq have slaughtered hundreds of thousands of children has fueled hatred that has culminated in terrorism. The general lesson we can draw is that economics is really just a fancy word for the quality of our lives, and that the quality of our lives has no greater enemy than the government's that attempt to restrict economic liberty. Looking at people's lifespans, we see the hidden history of the rise of economic development. Throughout the first huge period of human history from the beginning until the birth of your father's great-grandfather, the average lifespan was 20 to 35 years, and a third to half of all children died before reaching the age of five. Economic conditions before very recently in the history of man could not sustain a world population that rose above a few million. Even by the year 1800, the average lifespan was only 40. The standard of living for the average person throughout all but the smallest slice of human history can be aptly summed up in the words of Thomas Malthus. Quote, at nature's mighty feast, there is no vacant cover for him. She tells him to be gone and will quickly execute her own orders, unquote. That was life as everyone but kings knew it 
after the fall and before the Industrial Revolution. But in the last tiny fragment of the history of the world, lifespans have more than doubled, and the world's population has increased 1,000 times. By far the largest improvements in these vital statistics have occurred since 1800, at a time when the division of labor expanded dramatically around the world, when property rights were secure, when capital could be accumulated, invested, and a return paid and reinvested, when technological improvements permitted new forms of productivity. What made this possible was the free market. We take for granted such luxuries as refrigeration, the air conditioner, the internal combustion engine, and electricity, to say nothing of email, the web, and fiber optics. But we rarely reflect on the fact that all of these technologies so integral to our lives were absent when our great-great-grandfathers were alive, along with every previous generation in the history of the world. What set this revolution in motion was the world of ideas, when great thinkers began to understand the internal logic of the market economy and its potential for liberating mankind from poverty, dependency, and despotic rule. Given this history, one might think that everyone would sit and marvel at the products of capitalism. We might think that intellectuals would dedicate their lives to defending this system and explaining its merits. We might imagine that statesmen would dedicate themselves to protecting the system of economic progress from every attempt to curb or abolish it. Alas, that is not true. Quite the opposite. The intellectual world often appears to be a conspiracy against market economics, and the media routinely ridicule capitalism. Statesmen spend every waking minute trying to curb, regulate, hamper, or otherwise loot the capitalist system. Those who attack the World Trade Center were driven by revenge, but also by a belief that the towering products of the commercial society somehow represented evil that must be destroyed, rather than a virtue that should be emulated. They were merely absorbing a view that is pervasive in our culture today, where the anti-capitalist mentality runs rampant. In our own times, we've seen the evil produced by this mentality. In the former Soviet Union and in many third world countries, where politicians do everything possible to keep the entrepreneurial spirit penned up, where property rights are not secure, and where investment for the long term is not permitted. The result is always the same. Poverty, despotism, death. As founder and president of the Mises Institute, I have a special attachment to the ideas of Mises and to the courageous life he lived in defense of the idea of freedom. He began his career in Vienna, writing about the problems of the business cycle and the role of money and credit in fostering it. The core point he made in his great 1912 book, The Theory of Money and Credit, was that artificial increases in the money supply are not a substitute for real economic production. Indeed, such increases cause economic damage that can only be rectified through painful economic contractions. His point has continuing relevance. His next book from 1919 sought to defend the idea that governments ought to be small and geographically limited for the sake of social peace. Next, in 1920 and 1922, he proved that socialism could not work as an economic system because it abolished property rights and capital, and thus destroyed the system of profit and loss that allows for economic calculation. His methodological and business cycle writings from the 1930s are some of the most profound in the history of the social sciences. Finally, in 1940 and 1949, he produced what is quite possibly the finest product of any economist in history, his monumental treatise called Human Action. Incidentally, he wrote most of his treatise while in Geneva, in exile from his native Austria. The invading German armies deemed his work dangerous. They entered Mises' apartment and looted his files and papers. 
Mises, you see, was against socialism, whether Bolshevik or Nazi. Reflect on that, and you begin to understand the absurdity of calling communism leftist and Nazism rightist as if they were polar opposites. They both varieties of the very opposite of freedom itself. If I were to give all college students a reading assignment today, I would recommend human action above all else. Yet at nearly 1,000 pages, it can be intimidating, and you will probably need to read it with a dictionary nearby. But it will open up new vistas of thought for you and help you to rise above conventional wisdom. I continue to believe that this book points the way for us to bring about rising and sustainable prosperity and also to guard civilization against its enemies. The headlines of the business pages have been trumpeting the arrival of recovery from March 2001 until the present. So far, the entire length of the downturn. How do the experts decide when recession is turned to recovery? By looking at the data, which come in packages labeled in various ways. The GDP, the leading indicators, the unemployment rate, industrial production, housing starts, commercial borrowings, office vacancy rates, and a host of other considerations. If these tend in the negative direction, we are said to be entering a downturn. If they move in a positive direction, it is said we are recovering. Let's grant first that the larger the data set, the more subject to manipulation it is. We can count housing starts, but measuring something like national productivity is very tricky business. The great scandal of the way that gross domestic product is collected is that it does not measure wealth destruction, as caused by something like the attacks on September 11th, or the 40% of private wealth consumed by government at every level all years. Neither does it make a distinction between private production and outright government spending. Because of this, looking at that data alone, without a proper theory of economics, can produce a highly misleading picture. For many months, the government has been engaged in a serious effort to bring us out of recession through a variety of fiscal and monetary policies. If recovery is really here, can we say that these policies have worked? Not necessarily, because we must establish a firm relationship between cause and effect to draw such a conclusion. The economy might have recovered without such stimulus efforts. In fact, such stimulus efforts might make the recovery weaker than it otherwise might be. A more serious possibility is that the stimulus efforts have actually created an illusion. While everyone is celebrating the unexpected economic recovery, which is also unexpectedly robust, it serves us to look beneath the surface. There are aspects of this recovery that are highly unstable because they were brought about through artificial means. There are also certain policy trends which suggest that it might not last or that it will not be as robust as it might otherwise be. The Congressional Budget Office points out that new government spending has surpassed the amounts envisioned by the stimulus measures proposed in 2001 and 2002 exceeding what even the most spendthrift lawmakers dared demand. The spending surge, along with consumer debt, helps to explain why the recession seemed mild and why everyone is talking about recovery. A major increase in government spending, which has very quickly redirected $100 billion into the economy, began in October 2001. Outlays went up over 2001's increases by 13.1%. In terms of GDP, it accounts for fully 1%. As for consumer spending, it is financed almost entirely by new borrowing fueled by artificially low interest rates. Looking even deeper, we can see that Federal Reserve policy has been astonishingly loose since the beginning of 2001, reaching as high as 20% per annum by some measures. Let's say I set out to stimulate economic production in a college classroom. We could all gather together to write 
some software that's valued by the market, or we could teach you some of the new skills that increase our labor productivity. But what if I stood there with a photocopying machine and made a thousand copies of a $20 bill, passed them around, and then announced that we're all $20,000 richer than before? Everyone would be rightly skeptical of this claim. When the Federal Reserve does the same thing with its money creation machine, we should be skeptical also. While recognizing that some of the rebound may consist of sustainable investment begun after the great shakeout of 2000, these factors just cited strongly suggest that the current economic recovery consists of more myth than reality. We need to ask ourselves whether and by what means it can be sustained. The only means for doing so is for it to be supported through strong economic development and sound investment, investment that is borne out in consumer purchases and long-term profits. It turns out, however, that the federal government has done everything possible to undermine the likelihood of a sustainable recovery. In 2002, the U.S. imposed a 30% tariff on steel. The idea here was to help one inefficient, bloated, and pampered industry at the expense of all U.S. consumers of steel, including U.S. businesses and all producers in Europe, Asia, Brazil, and Australia. This is brazen protectionism, deeply harmful all around, not to mention morally repugnant. Did it help the steel industry? In the short run, yes, but we have to ask ourselves whether this kind of help is a good thing in the long run. The tariffs permitted inefficient industry to continue to produce inefficiently and forestall improvements in technology and cutbacks in wages that are necessary if the industry is to adjust to 21st century realities. There's no virtue to keeping dying and inefficient technology humming along so that workers who would be better employed elsewhere can continue to enjoy fat checks doing outmoded work. How long must such tariffs remain in place? The steel industry said they are only necessary in order to get it back on its feet. But that belies the question of what, precisely, is going to inspire this sector to clean up its act. Protecting an industry from competition is a method that permits everything wrong with the industry to persist and not change. Either the tariff will have to be in place permanently or the industry will have to be shaken up. If you think about it, Soviet socialism survived for 74 years on precisely such policies. The Soviet state protected all its industries from market competition under the alleged need to build socialism. Factories were never closed. Workers were never let go except for political reasons when their services were employed in the gulag. System worked only if the standard was not efficiency, but merely the guarding of the status quo. Eventually, the system collapsed, as status systems must, and the Soviets woke up to a world that was backward and decayed. The steel tariff imposed by the Bush administration is different from Soviet socialism only in degree, not in kind. It is an attempt to circumvent the market process through a centrally administered system of rewards and subsidies for industry to abide by political priorities rather than market dictates. In the meantime, all purchases of steel, whether consumers or other businesses, are harmed by being forced to pay a higher price for an inferior product. Also in 2002, the U.S. imposed massive punitive duties on softwood imports from Canada. Why? Because Canada refused to obey a U.S. demand that it place a new tax on its softwood. The new duties raised the price of softwood used for building nearly every home in America by 27%. This is going to distort the housing market among any other sectors that use wood. Higher prices for steel and wood put additional pressure on other businesses to use these products in production. In economic terms, tariffs are indistinguishable from sales taxes. They take people's property by force by requiring businesses 
and consumers to pay higher prices for goods than they would otherwise pay in a free market. To that extent, they harm the prospects for economic growth. If anyone says otherwise, he's ignoring hundreds of years of scholarship and the entire sorry history of government interference with international trade. The repercussions of these two actions are already being felt via damaged relations in Latin America and Europe. The World Trade Organization will likely give the green light for retaliation. Protectionist lobbies all over the world are rushing to take advantage of the opportunity. The EU has imposed tariffs on U.S. steel, and Canada is considering retaliatory measures. This way lights trade war, which is the worst thing that can happen to an economy other than hot war. Another policy that endangers recovery is the war on terrorism. I'm not taking issue with the need for justice after September 11th, but it seems clear that the government used this tragedy as an excuse to vastly increase spending and regulation over the American and world economy. President Bush, who campaigned on a platform of cutting government, has asked for another $28 billion to pour into the military, even as he is pushing for more regulations on banks and financial privacy in the name of rooting out terrorism. The total increases for 2002 and 2003 could be as high as $300 billion, depending on whom the U.S. plans to conquer next. Here again, this spending can create the illusion of prosperity. But we must also remember that the first lesson of economic science is this. The world is a finite place where the use of any and all resources are constrained by scarcity. This is just another way of saying that you cannot always get what you want, and when you do, it must come from somewhere. When the government spends resources, it must drain them from the private economy through taxation, borrowing, or inflating the money supply to pay for the new spending. Economics doesn't deny that redirecting resources from one sector where they are valued by consumers to another sector where they are valued by government can create pockets of expansion. What economics suggests is that this is not an efficient or sustainable use of such resources. Only the unhampered competitive market economy with a system of market prices, profits, and losses can reveal to us with any certainty the most desirable destination of economic goods. But in the examples I have just given, you can see how government intervention is redirecting resources from consumers' most desired ends to purposes deemed desirable by political planners. The politicians believe that the military needs resources more than you and I, so they take them. They believe that the profits of the steel industry are more important than the international division of labor, so they protect that industry. They believe that the softwood industry deserves to obtain the highest possible prices for its products, so they intervene to hamper imports. As for the explosion of consumer spending that has taken place over the course of the downturn, this does indeed encourage businesses to expand. If low interest rates are encouraging consumers to dig deep to borrow for and buy new homes, this will encourage more investment in housing on the production side as well. And this, too, will be encouraged by the interest rates being depressed by the Federal Reserve. Artificially low interest rates also tend to discourage savings and encourage people to put money back into the stock markets where they hope it can earn a higher rate of return. If credit expansion, protectionism, and government spending were a path to prosperity, mankind would long ago have created heaven on earth. But the politicians engaged in these activities have to contend with reality. And the reality is that economics, economic forces in society must be mutually sustaining. To have production and borrowing, there must be savings, which only occurs when people forego consumption today to prepare for tomorrow, and when investment pans out in the forms of consumption. Absent such conditions, economic growth lacks a foundation in reality and turns to dust when economic conditions change. We have seen many examples of this in recent years. 
The Internet bubble was one such case. There was nothing unreal about technology or its potential to provide massive gains in efficiency, as well as a vibrant new commercial marketplace and information delivery service. Nor was there anything ignoble about investors who pump money into dot-coms on the promises of future profits. What distorted the picture was too much credit, courtesy of the Federal Reserve, chasing too few capitalized companies. When the Fed began to reduce the pace of monetary pumping, lenders pulled back, investors pulled out, and dot-coms and their support infrastructure found themselves overextended well beyond what the market would have borne if it had not been subsidized by reckless Fed policy. The collapse of the NASDAQ was nothing more than reality reasserting itself. Some malinvestments were cleaned out, and the ground was prepared for new investment. Dot-coms weren't the only ones affected by the bubble. Enron is another famed case in point. This company profited and dramatically expanded at a time when investors were encouraged to recklessly purchase stocks without regard to balance sheets. The auditors are catching the blame, but the truth is that Enron profited at a time when portfolio managers weren't paying very close attention either. The only way such a cluster of errors comes to predominate in a market economy is when the central bank unleashes new money and credit beyond anything the market can sustain for long. Prior to our own bubble, we saw a similar situation in Asia and before that in Mexico. In each of these cases, what we find is not market failure, but a failure of the system of money and credit provide reliable signals for investors and lenders. It is helpful to think of the interest rate as a price signal, so that Fed attempts to drive down rates simply misprice credit. In the same way that a government price ceiling would cause overconsumption of any good, whether eggs, gas, or electricity, distortions of the interest rate encourage overconsumption of credit. It's not surprising, then, that we are seeing a spending boom take place today among consumers, even as producers are pulling back in many areas. Certain sectors have prospered since the reflation began after mid-2001. Housing in particular has boomed out of all proportion to what it would otherwise do in a free market. If any sector is being set up for a fall today, it is this one. Regardless of the fallout from day-to-day economic affairs, Mises believed that no power on earth is as strong as ideas. You live in a world of ideas, so take your responsibilities very seriously. The achievements of freedom should speak for themselves, but sadly they do not. Freedom needs courageous individuals who are willing to stand apart from the mob and state an unconventional truth. A Secret History of the Boom and Bust This text is drawn from the keynote address at the Sage Capital Management Conference in Houston, Texas, March 12, 2003. The Austrian economists tell us that a price is more than a price. It is an objective expression of subjective judgments concerning human wants now and in the future. It conveys information to us about how we ought to conduct ourselves, where capital should be directed, how much of what should be consumed now or later, which jobs to take and which to pass over. In short, prices provide the roadmap to the successful navigation of the material world. How striking it is to see stock prices respond so actively to the war on Iraq, the dominant event of the day. Since the war began, prices rose in response to the prospect that the war would end soon, and sank on the prospect that the war will go on and on. What does this price information convey? Most likely, it reflects an inchoate sense that this war would do nothing to bring us out of economic contraction and into recovery. That is precisely true. Wars often result in severe setbacks, not only prolonging the contraction, but deepening it as well. To hear official voices talk, however, 
We have not been going through the longest recession in the post-war period. Instead, we have been through a 24-month slow recovery. It is also called a sagging economy with sound fundamentals. Greenspan has made references to a soft patch in a foundation supposedly as hard as stone. Indeed, in the effort to avoid using the term recession, the Federal Reserve has become a business cycle phrase mill. Thus, according to the Fed, this is a soft economy, a subpar economy, a skittish economy, an economy weighted down by weak expenditures, an economy of persistent weakness, or my favorite, an economy facing formidable barriers to vigorous expansion. Call it what you want, but don't call it a recession. As for the D word, depression, don't even think it. With the latest data on the producer price index, the commodity price index, and the increase in oil prices, we are starting to see what other tortuous linguistic devices are at work. It is not inflation, it is sector-specific price pressure. In the old days, rising unemployment, sinking production, and price inflation combined to create what was called stagflation. What will it be called this time? Something rather ingenious, no doubt. The National Bureau of Economic Research officially dates the contraction from March 2001, fully six months before 9-11. Not a day has gone by in the last two years when some commentator has neither denied we are in a downturn, claimed we are already out of the contraction, or cited evidence that the recovery is underway and demanded that everyone admit it already. In fact, I believe our time will be recorded as a period of general economic meltdown. How much worse will it get and how much longer will it last? We cannot know for sure. But we do know that right now the government is doing everything in its power to make it worse. Those of us who warned in the 1990s that the stock price mania could not last were accused of spreading gloom and doom. Our warnings were considered self-eminently ridiculous because, of course, it was said that we were in a new economy and such things as profitability and earnings and savings were old hat and had no bearing on the cyber world being created before our eyes. Only the Austrian school economists seemed to wonder what or who was behind the frenzy. In contrast to the 1980s, when everyone was watching the money supply, the markets were suspiciously uninterested in what the Fed was up to in the 1990s. It funded a bailout of Mexico, then a bailout of East Asia, then a bailout of a crazy Connecticut hedge fund that believed it could predict the future by paying Nobel laureates vast sums to concoct a mathematical model that perfectly predicted the past. But still hardly anyone cared. The phrase, money supply, elicited yawns. The Wall Street Journal, meanwhile, ran a few articles explaining why there is no longer any such thing as risk. It was only the Austrians who seemed to take notice when money creation rates began to take off in 1995 and climbed to 15% in late 1998 and 1999, taking the bull market on its wildest ever ride. Monetary expansion rates settled down a bit in 2000, a trend which at first seemed merely inauspicious, like a tiny tap on a domino lined up against a thousand others. Once the bear market began, there was no turning back, no matter how much the Fed inflated. Instead of stabilizing downward as they had in Clinton's first term, money creation rates shot up again, reaching an astounding 22% in December 2001 from a year earlier, and then fell back down again, creating a double-dip bear market in the course of a mere 24 months. In these numbers, we find the secret history of the great boom and bust of our time. Let me give a brief outline of why and try to explain why it is that so few seem to pick up on it. At the dawn of the century of central banking, an economist named Ludwig von Mises set out to rewrite the theory of what money is and how government can seriously distort its workings. 
Among the puzzles he sought to solve was one that most economists, including Karl Marx, had noticed, swings in business activity from boom to bust. Marx said that cycles are endemic to capitalism and a sign of the final crisis that will sweep in the age of socialism. In contrast, Mises found that the business cycle is a symptom not of the free market, but of attempts to manipulate the market through unsound monetary practices. Moreover, he found that these cycles are self-correcting, provided that the government doesn't attempt to forestall the necessary correction that follows an artificial boom. Mises concluded by looking carefully at the relationships among the financial sector, money and banking, and the structure of production itself. On the free market, he said, the interest rate reflects the extent to which people are willing to forgo current consumption for later consumption. The more business and holders of money are willing to put off consumption, the lower the rate will be. A low borrowing rate for business, which spurs investment, reflects a high rate of consumer savings, which reflects a willingness of consumers to purchase the products made in lengthy production processes. In testimony the other day, Greenspan claimed the following, quote, Economists understand very little about how technological progress occurs, unquote. Perhaps he should have said that he, Greenspan, knows little about how technological progress occurs. At least as regards the Austrian economists, his statement is false. Within the framework of the freedom of exchange, entrepreneurs make judgments about what consumers might want in the future, including new technologies. Capitalists and investors assume the risk, employing private property. Investments that are profitable attract more resources, and those that yield losses are shelved. This is the free market capital structure at work in a complex economy. It is truly a miracle of coordination, extending through all sectors and across a huge range of time horizons with no central management and needing none. It balances human needs with the availability of all the world's resources, unleashes the amazing power of human creativity, and works to meet the material needs of every member of society at the least possible cost. It does this through exchange, cooperation, competition, entrepreneurship, and all the institutions that make possible capitalism, the most productive economic system this side of heaven. The system of capital coordination not only works without central management, government's attempts to manage it create dislocations across sectors and across time. Let us never underestimate the social benefits that flow from this seemingly technical mechanism. The market economy has created unfathomable prosperity, and decade by decade, century by century, miraculous feats of innovation, production, distribution, and social coordination. To the free market, we owe all material prosperity, all leisure time, our health and longevity, our huge and growing population, nearly everything we call life itself. Capitalism, and capitalism alone has rescued the human race from degrading poverty, rampant sickness, and early death. In the absence of the capitalist economy, and all its underlying institutions, the world's population would, over time, shrink to a small fraction of its current size, with whatever was left of the human race systematically reduced to subsistence, eating only what could be hunted or gathered. The institution that is the source of the word civilization, the city, depends on trade and commerce, and cannot exist without them. And this is only to mention the economic benefits of capitalism. It is also an expression of freedom. It is not so much a social system, but the natural result of a society where an individual freedom is respected, and where businesses, families, and every form of association are permitted to flourish in the absence of coercion, looting, and war. Capitalism protects the weak from the strong, granting choice and opportunity to the masses, 
who once had no choice but to live in a state of dependency on the politically connected and their enforcers. But capitalism has many enemies, among them those who would attempt to gin up economic production through loose credit. What Mises focused on in his book on money was the effects of this particular attack on the free market. Expansion of money and credit by the central bank, and in particular, the attempt to drive down the price of credit to spur business investment. Doing this through the interest rate requires injections of new money into the economy. One effect of this has been known for centuries. It causes prices to rise. But the other effect Mises discovered, it subsidizes long-term capital investment in a manner that cannot be supported by the patterns of consumption and saving. As one Austrian economist put it, when the central bank drives down interest rates, it causes the economy to bite off more than it can chew. The effect of artificially inflating the economy can be rising prices, but as we saw in the late 1920s and other times since, that is not always the case. It often causes a kind of investment euphoria that leads people to believe that nothing can go wrong. The monetarists, for example, believe that so long as prices remain in check, there is no problem associated with money expansion. The supply-siders, though sound on many issues, have an unfortunate faith in the power of loose credit to make bread from stones. Mises developed his theory throughout the 1920s and warned of the coming 1929 stock market crash. His work was carried forward by F.A. Hayek throughout the 1930s. Hayek later received the Nobel Prize for this. Indeed, the theory was widely embraced until Keynes dreamed up an alternative view that resurrected all the old fallacies about the miracles of money creation and centralized economic management. Then the Misesian theory languished for decades until the current downturn. Today it is getting new attention as the leading explanation of the insanity of the late 1990s and the current bust. Only the Austrians said all along that reality would strike back. The Fed and the administration have worked ever since, using the only tools that they have, regulation, spending, and credit expansion, to reverse the course of the recession. When I think of the Fed spreading money far and wide, I think of the government in Huxley's Brave New World handing out soma pills or spreading soma vapors to distract people from reality, drugging them so they will be content despite the surrounding disaster. If they start to resist, out comes the soma until the crowds collapse in kisses and hugs. It is always an illusion to believe that more money is the answer. The federal funds rate is at a 40-year low, and that hasn't done the trick. During the 1990s, the Bank of Japan tried again and again to manufacture a recovery through absurdly low rates, but that didn't work either. There is no evidence from either theory or history that pounding interest rates into the ground can create anything resembling a sustainable prosperity, and yet people believe it, or want to believe it, because it seems better than the alternative. The entire affair illustrates the underlying reality of American political and economic life the state's ability to create money and credit. All other powers of government, regulatory, fiscal, even military, pale in comparison to this. Despite that, the Fed is the least controversial institution in American political life. Apart from Ron Paul of Texas, no national politician understands how it works. When Greenspan comes before Congress, he is treated like a minor god. If this worship is ever tempered with skepticism, it is on grounds that he is not inflating enough or that he is somehow being stingy and not spreading the wealth. Tragically, there is no organized constituency in American politics for tighter money, less credit, sounder finance. Mises distinguishes three varieties of inflationism, 
that is the demand of the state, work with the banking industry to flood the economy with credit. The first is naive inflationism, which sees no real downside to monetary expansion. The second is inflationism intended to reward debtors at the expense of creditors. And the third sees disadvantages to an expansionary policy, but believes that the advantages outweigh them. The U.S. is right now in the grip of the worst form, naive inflationism, which, as Mises says, quote, demands an increase in the quantity of money without suspecting this will diminish the purchasing power of money. It wants more money because, in its eyes, the mere abundance of money is wealth. Fiat money. Let the state create money and make the poor rich and free them from the bonds of the capitalists, unquote. And here we are today enduring the longest recession in post-war history, a Nasdaq off 75% from its highs and a Dow off 40%, and the government is still issuing buy signals. Imagine if you had used George W. as your portfolio manager. You would have bought stocks when he became president, held on to them through 9-11, and then bought more and more afterwards. Incidentally, you'll notice that the official rationale for buying stocks has changed. Whereas once it was said you could buy because the economy is on a permanent growth path, after September 11th it was said you should buy to display your patriotism. If that isn't a sell signal, I don't know what is. Of course, no one in his right mind would let the President of the United States manage his stock portfolio. Why then do we trust his government to spend wisely the $2.5 trillion it will extract from the private economy this year? Of course, we don't really trust the government to do that, but we do not have much choice in the matter. The money is taken from us by force and is thereby, by definition, directed towards uses that are not those which owners would have chosen. This is power, not market, at work. What is striking to note, however, is that all the ways in which power is not only destructive, but also ineffective against the market economy. The government did not know that firms such as Enron and WorldCom were unviable. All the regulators put together could not anticipate the consequences of what private traders alone were to discover, that these businesses had wildly overextended themselves. Leaving aside questions of ethical lapses of these companies, the most significant lesson we should learn from their collapse is that the market economy has built within it a fabulous internal check against illusion. Companies that could not sustain themselves on their own merits were simply abandoned by investors. It counts towards the enduring shame of the Bush administration that attempted to blame the market for the bust of so many companies, rather than having given credit to the market for having discovered the problem in the first place and then having done something about it. But as FDR demonstrated after the Depression, there are political points to be made by skewering the private sector in order to distract from the failures of the public sector. The alleged crime the Bush administration seized on was accounting fraud, even though it is not at all clear that what WorldCom, Enron, Computer Associates, Global Crossing, or Quest did, often with the blessing of respected auditors, amounts to that at all. In each case, the accusation was similar. Their books counted spending as profitable investment before the revenue was in the bag, and when the economic tables turned, their optimistic predictions proved unsound and even, in retrospect, absurd. WorldCom was the worst case of the bunch, which is why the government has made such a big deal out of the arrest of two former executives. The spectacular shifting of a total of $3.8 billion from expenses to capital began small in mid-2000 as the bust was hitting, and their financial statements were starting to appear unimpressive. No one disputes the facts. WorldCom's expenses for last-mile leases on other companies' communications networks were rising very quickly. Managers wanted to move these expenses off of the profit and loss statement and onto the balance sheet, thus reflecting a more profitable appearance.
Now understand that there was no lying going on, and no graft or theft or anything else of that nature. What we have here is an imprudent reclassification design to impress investors who, at the height of the bubble, demanded nothing less. Unless you're an accounting whiz, there is no way to say that this is a priori evil. In any case, it didn't fool anyone. Many skeptics drew attention to the crazy finance of WorldCom's books. But in the boom times made possible by the Fed, most people didn't care. Most of the other cases of corporate fraud that came under the microscope were far less serious than WorldCom, and none are obvious cases of theft or fraud. Mostly it was just bad forecasting reflected on optimistic accounting methods. The supposed damage caused by their behavior was that their dressed-up books kept their stock price rising even as the financial condition of the company deteriorated. That's probably true, but it's also a short description of what it means to be in a bubble economy. If this is fraud, the entire economic boom was fraud. Hitting closer to the truth, the New York Times called D.C.'s anti-business frenzy, quote, the vital center of the administration's strategy for reducing the political vulnerability for the White House, unquote. In other words, the Republicans are up to their old trick of behaving even worse than the Democrats in order to keep the Democrats from coming to power. If you disagree with this approach, you must be some sort of libertarian utopian who doesn't understand the need for compromise. The underlying assumption was the view that it is always a terrible thing for a business to go under, when in fact it is not. It is merely a reflection of human preference as expressed in buying and selling decisions. The only alternative to going under in some cases is to operate uneconomically, but that is precisely what the government has in mind for the steel sector last year. Recession, inefficiency, and bankruptcy are not the only man-made disasters which the government threatens us. Hardly a day goes by when the government doesn't issue some maniacal warning about impending terror attack, and the sense of uncertainty and confusion that follows can only forestall recovery. How much is real and how much is propaganda or merely bureaucratic risk aversion? We cannot know. They recently urged us to buy duct tape to seal the windows in our house in order to protect ourselves from chemical warfare. They also told us they may use nuclear bombs against enemies real and imagined. When the warning was given in February, gullible Americans cleaned out the stores of duct tape. Buried in the news a week later was the fact that the person who gave the tip that led to the orange alert was lying. Of course, the revelation didn't do the government much harm and the crisis environment that the tip engendered is much good for our masters who want to keep us in a relentless state of insecurity and therefore dependent on them. That helps them keep doing what they want to do anyway. For example, spend money and inflate with the debts thereby incurred. Politicians say they must run deficits of hundreds of billions of dollars to avert an impending calamity that will make 9-11 look like a warm-up. They say this, but they've yet to issue a sell signal. The government continues to downplay the economic calamity before our eyes while talking up the prospects for a calamity that can only be solved, they say, by using the biggest big government program of them all, war. At the end of the Cold War, many of us hoped that normalcy would return, that the U.S. would once again become a peaceful commercial republic. But Bush the Elder had a different idea. He decided to bomb Iraq and impose sanctions that would last 12 years kill untold hundreds of thousands, inspire terror plots all over the Muslim world, provide a new rationale for why the U.S. must continue to squander hundreds of billions a year on military public works programs. We were often told we must go to war because some swarthy foreign head of state is not a big fan of the U.S. president. In 2003, the person fitting that description is Saddam Hussein. Before then, it was Mullah Omar, 
few years earlier, it was Milosevic. Before that, it was some ward healer in Somalia. Moving backward in time, we had to take out the strongmen in Panama and Haiti. The story goes on and on. It seems that the U.S. government is addicted to conflict. They just can't seem to give it up. Now, I know there will be plenty of disagreement when I say we ought to do, be trading with Iraq, not bombing it. But let's at least be clear what we are talking about when we refer to the U.S. military machine. The U.S. will spend $400 billion on its military this year, and that does include VA hospitals, most spying, the atom bomb building in the Energy Department, the military part of NASA, or the Pentagon's huge black or secret budget. The second highest military budget in the world is Russia's. Going down the list, next come China, then Japan, then the U.K. You have to tick through 27 countries and add their total spending together to equal what the U.S. spends per year. Not since the Roman Empire has a single country been so militarily dominant. Let's look at the relative strength of the U.S. versus Iraq in particular. Quantitatively before the war, Iraq spent one quarter of one percent of what the U.S. spends on its military. Qualitatively, the Iraqi military machine was already crippled, with no spare parts for its ancient equipment. The soldiers are teenage conscripts in rags with old rifles. The idea that this is a fair fight is a joke. Those who worry about Iraq overarming itself ought to look a bit closer to home. As for the shooting war, some military commentators have compared its ease to drowning puppies. Thanks to a combination of misrule and punishing sanctions, this once prosperous country has been reduced to rubble. The U.S. has reduced it further, though in doing so the U.S. faces a difficult foe, the desire of a people not to be invaded by a foreign army and the unpredictability of political forces. The long-time emphasis of the old liberal tradition with regard to war is this. Even the victor loses. We lose resources. We lose tax dollars. We lose trading relationships and goodwill around the world. Most of all, we lose freedom. And therein lies the biggest cost of war to us. For there is no way the U.S. can maintain a free market that is the foundation of prosperity, while at the same time attempting to create a global military central plan. Big government abroad is incompatible with small government at home. To the extent we cheer war, we are cheering domestic socialism and our own eventual destruction as a civilization. Perhaps, however, you do not need persuading on any of these matters. I know many people who look at the economy and the military belligerence of the U.S. government, and they react with despair. I reject this posture. For one thing, I'm firmly convinced that the government has reached too far. When you consider the full range of social, economic, and international planning on which it has embarked, you can know in advance that this cannot work. Government is not God, nor are the men who run it impeccable or infallible, nor do they have a direct pipeline to the Almighty. The method they have chosen to bring about security and order is destined towards failure. The war against terrorism is a good example. Everyone in Washington is terrified of the next attack. To shore up the war, there has been no shortage of rhetoric. No expense is spared on arms escalation. There's no lack of will. The effort has the aid of plenty of smart people, it is backed by threats of massive bloodshed. What is missing is the essential means to cause the war to yield beneficial results. With all the millions of potential terrorists out there, and the infinite possibilities of how, when, and where they will strike, there is no way the state can possibly stop them. Behind terrorism is political grievance. This is not speculation. That is the word of the terrorists themselves, from Timothy McVeigh to Osama bin Laden to the suicide bombers. The pool of actual terrorists, like the pool of the poor in the war on poverty, is limited and can be known, and they are the ones the state focuses on. 
But the pool of potential terrorists and potential poor people is unlimited and unleashed by the very means the state employs. Hence, not only does the state not accomplish its stated goals, it recruits more people into the armies of the enemy and ends up completely swamped by a problem that grows ever worse, as the target population is able to make a mockery of the state through sheer defiance. And the war on poverty is more and more were added to the ranks of the poor, and the intended beneficiaries of the programs themselves began to mock the state's benevolence. People began to speak of the failure and collapse of the great society. Of course, the welfare state still exists, but the moral passion and ideological fervor are gone. In the same way, we will soon be speaking of the collapse of the war on terror. Bin Laden is still on the loose, and everyone knows there are hundreds or thousands of replacement Bin Ladens out there. Terrorism has increased since the war began. Israel suffers daily and in constantly changing ways in which even the most famous and empowered intelligence and military units cannot anticipate or prevent. But can't the state just kill more, employ ever more violence, perhaps even terrorize the enemy into passivity? This cannot work. Even prisons experience rioting. A bracing comment from Israeli military historian Martin Van Creveld, quote, The Americans in Vietnam tried it. They killed between two and a half and three million Vietnamese. I don't see that it helped them much, unquote. Without admitting defeat, the Americans finally pulled out of Vietnam, which today is a thriving stock market. Can the U.S. just back out of its war on terror? Wouldn't that mean surrender? It would mean that the state surrenders its role, but not that everyone else does. Had the airlines been in charge of their own security, 9-11 would not have happened. In the same way that the free market provides for all our material needs, it can provide our security needs as well. The war on terror is impossible. Not in the sense that it cannot cause immense amounts of bloodshed and destruction and loss of liberty, but in the sense that it cannot finally achieve what it is supposed to achieve and will only end in creating more of the same conditions that led to its declaration in the first place. In other words, it's a typical government program, costly and unworkable, like socialism, like the war on poverty, like the war on drugs, like every other attempt by the government to shape reality according to its own designs. The next time Bush gets up to make his promises of the amazing things he will achieve through force of arms, how the world will be bent and shaped by his administration. Think of Stalin speaking at the 15th Party Congress, promising, quote, further to promote the development of our country's national economy in all branches of production, unquote. Everyone applauded and waited in blood pursuant to that goal. But in the end, even if he did not know it, it was impossible to achieve. Mises, who was so brilliant when it came to issues of money and credit, also saw the need for a thriving economy to operate amid an environment of peace. War, he said, is harmful, not only to the conquered, but to the conqueror. Society has arisen out of the works of peace. The essence of society is peacemaking. Peace and not war is the father of all things. Only economic action has created this wealth around us. Labor, not the profession of arms, brings happiness. Peace builds. War destroys. Our age is dominated by the state and its errors. The state has given us recession and war, while liberty has given us prosperity and peace. Which of the two paths prevails in the end depends on the ideas we hold about freedom, capitalism, and ourselves. May we never forget the great truth that our founding fathers worked so hard to impart. Tyranny destroys, while liberty is the mother of all that is beautiful and true in our world. I make no apologies for being a champion of prosperity and its source, the free market economy. It is what gives birth to civilization itself. 
it is fashionable to reject concerns about the economy as narrow and uninteresting, a merely bourgeois interest. This attitude comes to prevail. We have great reason to be concerned about our present age. If, on the other hand, we can educate ourselves about the workings of economic forces and the way in which they are the foundations of freedom and peace, we will not only emerge from this recession prepared to enter into a new growth path, we'll have gone a long way to protecting ourselves from future assaults on our right to be free. Why Austrian Economics Matters Based on a lecture given as part of the Heritage Foundation Resource Bank series in Washington, D.C., December 10, 1995. Economics, wrote Joseph Schumpeter, is a, quote, big omnibus which contains many passengers of incommensurable interests and abilities, unquote. That is, economists are an incoherent and ineffectual lot, and their reputation reflects it. Yet it need not be so. For the economist attempts to answer the most profound question regarding the material world. Pretend you know nothing about the market, and ask yourself this question. How can society's entire deposit of scarce physical and intellectual resources be assembled so as to minimize cost, make use of the talents of every individual, provide for the needs and tastes of every consumer, encourage technical innovation, creativity, and social development, and do all this in a way that can be sustained? The question is worthy of scholarly effort, and those who struggle with the answer are surely deserving of respect. The trouble is this. The methods used by much of mainstream economics have little to do with acting people, and so these methods do not yield conclusions that have the ring of truth. This does not have to be the case. The central questions of economics have concerned the greatest thinkers since ancient Greece, and today economic thinking is broken down into many schools of thought. The Keynesians, the post-Keynesians, the new Keynesians, the classicals, the new classicals, or the rational expectation school, the monetarists, the Chicago public choicers, the Virginia public choicers, the experimentalists, the game theorists, the varying brands of supply-sideism, and on and on it goes. Also part of this mix, but in many ways apart from and above it, is the Austrian school. It is not a field within economics, but an alternative way of looking at the entire science. Whereas other schools rely primarily on idealized mathematical models of the economy and suggest ways the government can make the world conform, Austrian theory is more realistic and thus more socially scientific. Austrians view economics as a tool for understanding how people both cooperate and compete in the process of meeting needs, allocating resources, and discovering ways of building a prosperous social order. Austrians view entrepreneurship as a critical force in economic development, private property as essential to an efficient use of resources, and government intervention in the market process as always and everywhere destructive. The Austrian school is in a major upswing today. In academia, this is due to a backlash against hypermathematization, the resurgence of verbal logic as a methodological tool, and the search for a theoretically stable tradition in the madhouse of macroeconomic theorizing. In terms of policy, the Austrian school looks more and more attractive given continuing business cycle mysteries, the collapse of socialism, the cost and failures of the welfare warfare regulatory state, and public frustration with big government. In its 12 decades, the Austrian school has experienced different levels of prominence. It was central to the price theory debates before the turn of the century, to monetary economics in the first decade of the century, and to the controversies over socialism's feasibility and the source of the business cycle in the 1920s and 1930s. 
The school fell into the background from the 1940s to the mid-1970s and was usually mentioned only in history of economic thought textbooks. The proto-Austrian tradition dates from the 15th century Spanish scholastics, who first presented an individualist and subjectivist understanding of prices and wages. But the formal founding of the school dates from the 1871 publication of Karl Menger's Principles of Economics, which changed economists' understanding of the valuing, economizing, and pricing of resources, overturning both the classical and the Marxian views in the, quote, marginal revolution. Menger also generated a new theory of money as a market institution and grounded economics in deductive laws discoverable by the methods of the social sciences. Menger's book, said Louis von Mises, made an economist of him, and it is still of huge value. Jugend von Bambarwerk was the next important figure in the Austrian school. He showed that interest rates, when not manipulated by a central bank, are determined by the time horizons of the public, and that the rate of return on investments tends to equal the rate of time preference. He also dealt a deadly blow to Marx's theory of capital and exploitation, and was a key defender of theoretical economics at a time when historicists of every stripe were trying to destroy it. Bambarek's greatest student was Ludwig von Mises, whose first major project was the development of a new theory of money. The Theory of Money and Credit, published in 1912, elaborated on Menger, showing not only that money had its origins in the market, that there was no other way it could have come about. Mises also argued that money and banking ought to be left to the market, and that government intervention can only cause harm. In that book, which remains a standard work today, Mises also sowed the seeds of his business cycle theory. He argued that when the central bank artificially lowers interest rates, it causes distortions in the capital goods sector of the structure of production. When malinvestments occur, an economic downturn is necessary to wash out bad investments. Along with his student, F.A. Hayek, Mises established the Austrian Institute for Business Cycle Research in Vienna, and he and Hayek showed that the central bank is the source of the business cycle. Their work eventually proved to be most effective in combating Keynesian experiments and fine-tuning the economy through fiscal policies and the central bank. The Mises-Hayek theory was dominant in Europe, until Keynes won the day by arguing that the market itself was responsible for the business cycle. It didn't hurt that Keynes's theory advocating more spending, inflation, and deficits was already being practiced by governments around the world. At the time of the business cycle debate, Mises and Hayek were also involved in a controversy over socialism. In 1920, Mises had written one of the most important articles of the century, quote, Economic Calculation in the Socialist Commonwealth followed by his book, Socialism. Until then, there had been many critiques of socialism, but none had challenged socialists to explain how their economy would actually work absent free prices and private property. Mises argued that rational economic calculation requires a profit and loss test. If a firm makes a profit, it is using resources efficiently. If it makes a loss, it is not. Without such signals, the economic actor has no way to test the appropriateness of his decisions. He cannot assess the opportunity costs of this or that production decision. Prices and the profit and loss corollary are essential. Mises also showed that private property and the means of production is necessary for these prices to be generated. Socialism holds that the means of production should be in collective hands. This means no buying or selling of capital goods and thus no prices for them. Without prices, there is no profit and loss test. 
without accounting for profit and loss, there can be no real economy. Should a new factory be built? Under socialism, there is no way to tell. Everything becomes guesswork. Mises' essay ignited debate all over Europe and America. One top socialist, Oscar Lange, conceded that prices are necessary for economic calculation, but he said that central planners could generate prices out of their own heads, watch the length of lines at stores to determine consumer demand, and provide the signals of production themselves. Mises countered that playing market wouldn't work either. Socialism, by its own internal contradictions, had to fail. Hayek used the occasion of the calculation debate to elaborate upon and broaden the Misesian argument into his own theory of the uses of knowledge in society. He argued that the knowledge generated by the market process is inaccessible to any single human mind, especially that of the central planner. The millions of decisions required for a prosperous economy are too complex for any one person to comprehend. This theory became the basis of a fuller theory of the social order that occupied Hayek for the rest of his academic life. Mises came to the U.S. after fleeing the Nazis and was taken in by a handful of free market businessmen, preeminently Lawrence Fertig. Here he helped build a movement around his ideas, and most free market economists acknowledge their debt to him. No one, as Milton Friedman has said, did as much as Mises to promote free markets in this country. But those were dark times. He had trouble finding the paid university post he deserved, and it was difficult to get a wider audience for his views. During those early years in America, Mises worked to rewrite his just-completed German-language treatise into human action, an all-encompassing work for English-language audiences. In it, he carefully reworked the philosophical grounding of the social sciences in general, and economics in particular. This proved to be a significant contribution. Long after the naive dogmas of empiricism had failed, Mises' praxeology, or logic of human action, continues to inspire students and scholars. This magnum opus swept aside Keynesian fallacies and historicist pretensions and ultimately made possible the revival of the Austrian school. Until the 1970s, however, it was hard to find a prominent economist who did not share the Keynesian tenets, that the price system is perverse, that the free market is irrational, that the stock market was driven by animal spirits, that the private sector could not be trusted, that government is capable of planning the economy to keep it from falling into recession, and that inflation and unemployment are inversely related. One exception was Murray and Rothbard, another great student of Mises, who wrote a massive economic treatise in the early 1960s called Man, Economy, and State. In his book, Rothbard added his own contributions to Austrian thought. Similarly, the work of two other important students of Mises, Hans F. Senholtz and Israel Kirzner, carried on the tradition. And Henry Hazlitt, then writing a weekly column for Newsweek, did more than anybody to promote the Austrian school and make contributions to the school himself. The stagflation of the 1970s undermined the Keynesian school by showing that it was possible to have both high inflation and high unemployment at the same time. The Nobel Prize that Hayek received in 1974 for his business cycle research with Mises caused an explosion of academic interest in the Austrian school and free market economics in general. A generation of graduate students began studying the works of Mises and Hayek, and that research program continues to grow. Today, the Austrian school is most fully embodied in the work of the Mises Institute. The concept of scarcity and choice in a world of uncertainty lie at the heart of Austrian economics. Man is constantly faced with a wide array of choices. Every action implies foregone alternatives or costs, and every action, by definition, 
is designed to improve the actor's lot from his point of view. Moreover, every actor in the economy has a different set of values and preferences, different needs and desires, and different time schedules for the goals he intends to reach. The needs, tastes, desires, and time schedules of different people cannot be added to or subtracted from other people's. It is not possible to collapse tastes or time schedules into one curve and call it consumer preference. Why? Because economic value is subjective to the individual. Similarly, it is not possible to collapse the complexity of market arrangements into enormous aggregates. We cannot, for example, say that the economy's capital stock is one big blob, summarized by the letter K, and put that into an equation and expect it to yield useful information. The capital stock is heterogeneous. Some capital may be intended to create goods for sale tomorrow, others for sale in 10 years. The time schedules for capital use are as varied as the capital stock itself. Austrian theory sees competition as a process of discovering new and better ways to organize resources, one that is fraught with errors, but that is constantly being improved. This way of looking at the market is markedly different from every other school of thought. Ever since Keynes, economists have developed the habits of constructing parallel universes having nothing to do with the real world. In these universes, capital is homogeneous, and competition is a static end state. There are the right number of sellers. Prices reflect the cost of production, and there are no excess profits. Economic welfare is determined by adding up the utilities of all the individuals in society. The passing of time is rarely accounted for, except in changing from one static state to another. Varying time schedules of producers and consumers are simply non-existent. Instead, we have aggregates that give us precious little information at all. A conventional economist is quick to agree that these models are unrealistic, ideal types to be used as mere tools of analysis. But this is disingenuous, since these same economists use these models for policy recommendations. One obvious example of basing policy on contrived models of the economy takes place at the Justice Department's Antitrust Division. There the bureaucrats pretend to know the proper structure of industry, what kinds of mergers and acquisitions harm the economy, who has too much market share or too little, and what the relevant market is. This represents what Hayek called the pretense of knowledge. The correct relationship between competitors can only be worked out through buying and selling, not bureaucratic fiat. Austrian economists, in particular Rothbard, argue that the only real monopolies are created by government. Markets are too competitive to allow any monopolies to be sustained. Another example is the idea that economic growth can be manufactured by manipulating aggregate demand curves through more and faster government spending. Considered to be a demand booster instead of a supply reducer or government bullying of the consuming public. If the hallmark of conventional economics is unrealistic models, the hallmark of Austrian economics is a profound appreciation of the price system. Prices provide economic actors with critical information about the relative scarcity of goods and services. It is not necessary for consumers to know, for example, that a disease has swept the chicken population to know that they should economize on eggs. The price system, by making eggs more expensive, informs the public of the appropriate behavior. The price system tells producers when to enter and leave markets by relaying information about consumer preferences. And it tells producers the most efficient, that is, the least costly way to assemble other resources to create goods. Apart from the price system, there is no way to know these things. But rational prices must be generated by the free market.
They cannot be made up the way the government printing office makes up prices for its publication. They cannot be based on the cost of production in the manner of the post office. These practices create distortions and inefficiencies. Rather, prices must grow out of the free actions of individuals in a juridical setting that respects private property. Neoclassical price theory, as found in most graduate texts, covers much of this territory, but typically it takes for granted the accuracy of prices apart from their foundation in private property. As a result, virtually every plan for reforming the post-socialist economies talked about the need for better management, loans from the West, new and different forms of regulation, and the removal of price controls, but not private property. The result was the economic equivalent of a train wreck. Free-floating prices simply cannot do their work apart from private property and concomitant freedom to contract. Austrian theory sees private property as the first principle of a sound economy. Economists in general neglect the subject, and when they mention it, it is to find a philosophical basis for its violation. The logic and legitimacy of market failure analysis and its public goods corollary is widely accepted by non-Austrian schools of thought. The notion of public goods is that they cannot be supplied by the market and instead must be supplied by government and funded through its taxing power. The classic case is the lighthouse, except that as Ronald Coase has shown, private lighthouses have existed for centuries. Some definition of public goods can be so broad that if you throw out common sense, everyday consumer goods qualify. Austrians point out that it is impossible to know whether or not a market is failing without an independent test, of which there is none outside the actions of individuals. The market itself is the only available criterion for determining how resources ought to be used. Let's say I deem it necessary for various social reasons that there be one barber for every hundred people, and as I look around I notice this is not the case. Thus I might advocate that a national endowment for barbers be established to increase the barber supply. But the only means for knowing how many barbers there ought to be is the market itself. If there are fewer than one per hundred, we must assume that a larger number is not supposed to exist by any reasonable standard of efficient markets. It is not economically proper to develop a wish list of jobs and institutions that stands apart from the market itself. Conventional economics teaches that if the benefits or costs of one person's economic decisions spill over onto others, an externality exists and ought to be corrected by the government through redistribution. But broadly speaking, externalities are inherent in every economic transaction because cost and benefits are ultimately subjective. I may be delighted to see factories belching smoke because I love industry, but that does not mean I should be taxed for the privilege of viewing them. Similarly, I may be offended that most men don't have beards, but that doesn't mean that the clean-shaven ought to be taxed to compensate me for my displeasure. The Austrian school redefines externalities as occurring only with physical invasions of property, as when my neighbor dumps his trash in my yard. Then the issue becomes crime. There can be no value-free adding up of utilities to determine subjective costs or benefits of economic activity. Instead, the relevant criterion should be whether economic actions occur in a peaceful manner. Another area where Austrians differ is how the government is supposed to go about the practical problem of correcting for market failures. Granted that somehow the government can spot a market failure, the burden of proof is still on the government to demonstrate that it can perform the task more efficiently than the market. Austrians would refocus the energy that goes into finding market failures to understanding more about government failures. 
But the failure of government to do what mainstream theory says it can is not a popular subject. Outside of the public choice schools, it is usually assumed that the government is capable of doing anything it wants to do and of doing it well. Forgotten is the nature of the state as an institution with its own pernicious designs on society. One of the contributions of Rothbard was to focus Austrians on this point and on the likely patterns intervention will take. He developed a typology of interventionism and provided detailed critiques of many kinds of interventions and their consequences. The question is often asked in James Buchanan's famous phrase, what should economists do? Mainstream answers, in part, forecast the future. The goal is legitimate in the natural sciences because rocks and sound waves do not make choices. But economics is a social science dealing with people who make choices, respond to incentives, change their minds, and even act irrationally. Austrian economists realize that the future is always uncertain, not radically so, but largely. Human action in an uncertain world with pervasive security poses the economic problem in the first place. We, know we need entrepreneurs and prices to help overcome uncertainty, although this can never be done completely. Forecasting the future is the job of entrepreneurs, not economists. This is not to say that Austrian economists cannot expect certain consequences of particular government policies. For example, they know that below-market price ceilings always and everywhere create shortages, and that expansions of the money supply lead to general price increases and the business cycle, even if they cannot know the time and exact nature of these expected events. One final area of theoretical concern that distinguishes Austrians from the mainstream is economic statistics. Austrians are critical of the substance of most existing statistical measures of the economy. They are also critical of the uses to which they are put. Take, for example, the question of price elasticities, which supposedly measure consumer responsiveness to changes in price. The problem lies in the metaphor and in its applications. It suggests that elasticities exist independent of human action, that they can be known in advance of experience. But measures of historical consumer behavior do not constitute economic theory. Another example of a questionable statistical technique is the index number, the prime means by which the government calculates inflation. The problem with index numbers is that they obscure relative price changes among goods and industries, and relative price changes are of prime importance. This is not to say that the consumer price index is irrelevant, only that it is not a solid indicator, is subject to wide abuse, and masks highly complex price movements between sectors. And the gross domestic product statistic is riddled with composition fallacies inherent in the Keynesian model. Government spending is considered part of aggregate demand, and no effort is made to account for the destructive costs of taxation, regulation, and redistribution. If Austrians had their way, the government would never collect another economic statistic. Such data are used primarily to plan the economy. For Austrians, economic regulation is always destructive of prosperity because it misallocates resources and is extremely destructive of small business and entrepreneurship. Environmental regulation has been among the worst offenders in recent years. Nobody can calculate the extraordinary losses associated with the Clean Air Act or the absurdities associated with wetlands or endangered species policies. However, environmental policy can do what is explicitly intended to do, lower standards of living. But antitrust policy, in contrast to its stated policy, does not generate competitiveness. Such bogeymen as predatory pricing still scare the bureaucrats at justice, whereas simple economic analysis can refute the idea that a competitor can sell below the cost of production to take over the market and then sell at a monopoly price later. 
Any firm that attempts to sell below the cost of production will indefinitely suffer losses. The moment it attempts to raise prices, it invites competitors back into the market. Civil rights legislation represents one of the most intrusive regulatory interventions in labor markets. When employers are not able to hire, fire, and promote based on their own criteria of merit, dislocations occur within the firm and in labor markets at large. Moreover, civil rights legislation, by creating legal preferences for some groups, undermines the public's sense of fairness that is the market's hallmark. There is another cost of economic regulation. It impedes the entrepreneurial discovery process. This process is based on having a wide array of alternatives open to the uses of capital. Yet government regulation limits the options of entrepreneurs and erects barriers to the exercise of entrepreneurial talent. Safety, health, and labor regulations, for example, not only inhibit existing production, they impede the development of better production methods. Austrians have also developed impressive critiques of redistributionism. Conventional welfare theory argues that if the law of diminishing marginal utility is true, then total utility can easily be increased. If you take a dollar from a rich man, his welfare is slightly diminished, but that dollar is worth less to him than to a poor man. Thus, redistributing a dollar from a rich man to a poor man increases the total utility between the two. The implication is that welfare can be maximized through perfect income equality. The problem with this, say Austrians, is that utilities cannot be added or subtracted since they are subjective. Redistributionism takes from property owners and producers and gives by definition to non-owners and non-producers. This diminishes the value of the property that has been redistributed. Far from increasing total welfare, redistributionism diminishes it. By making property and its value less secure, income transfers lessen the benefits of ownership and production, and thus lower the incentives to both. Austrians reject the use of redistribution to stimulate the economy or otherwise manipulate the structure of economic activity. Increasing taxes, for example, can do nothing but harm. A shorthand for taxes is wealth destruction. They forcibly confiscate property that could otherwise be saved or invested, thus lowering the number of consumer options available. Moreover, there is no such thing as a strict consumer tax. All taxes decrease production. Austrians do not go along with the view that deficits don't matter. In fact, the requirement that deficits be financed by the public or foreign bondholders drives up interest rates, and this crowds out potential private investment. Deficits also create the danger that they will be financed through central bank inflation. Yet the answer to deficits is not to increase taxation, which is more destructive than deficits, but rather to balance the budget through necessary spending cuts. Where to cut? Anywhere and everywhere. The ideal situation is not simply a balanced budget. Government spending itself, regardless of deficit or surplus, should be as small as possible. Why? Because such spending diverts resources from better uses in private markets. We hear talk of this or that government investment, Austrians reject this term as an oxymoron. Real investment is taken on by capitalists risking their own money in hope of satisfying future consumer demands. Government limits the satisfaction of consumer demands by hampering production in the private sector. Besides, government investments are notorious wastes of money and are, in fact, consumption spending by politicians and bureaucrats. Mainstream economists hold that the government must control monetary policy and the structure of banking through cartels, deposit insurance, and a flexible fiat currency. Austrians reject this entire paradigm and argue that all are better controlled through private markets. In fact, to the extent that today we have serious and radical proposals for having the market play a greater role in banking and monetary policy, it is due to the Austrian school.
Deposit insurance has been on the public mind since the collapse of the SNL industry. The government guarantees deposits and loans with taxpayer money, so this makes financial institutions less careful. Government effectively does to financial institutions what a permissive parent does to a child, encourages poor behavior by eliminating the threat of punishment. Austrians would eliminate compulsory deposit insurance and not only allow bank runs to occur, but appreciate their potential as a necessary check. There would be no lender of last resort, that is the taxpayer in an Austrian monetary regime, to bail out bankrupt and illiquid institutions. Much of the Austrian critique of central banking centers around the Mises-Hayek business cycle theory. Both argued that the central bank, and not the market itself, is responsible for the cyclical behavior of business activity. To illustrate the theory, Austrians have undertaken extensive studies of many historical periods of recession and recovery to show that each was preceded by central bank machinations. The theory argues that central bank efforts to lower interest rates below the free market's level causes borrowers in the capital goods industry to overinvest in their projects. A lower interest rate is normally a signal that consumer savings are available to back up new production. That is, if a producer borrows to build a new building, there is enough saving for consumers to buy the goods and services that will be made in that building. Projects undertaken can be sustained, but artificially lowered rates lead businesses into undertaking unnecessary projects. This creates an artificial boom followed by a bust, since it is clear that savings weren't high enough to justify the degree of expansion. Austrians point out that the monetarist growth rule ignores the injection effects of even the smallest increase in money and credit. Such an increase will always create this business cycle phenomenon, even if it works to maintain a relatively stable index number, as in the 1920s and 1980s. What, then, should policymakers do when the economy enters recession? Mostly nothing. It takes time to wipe out the malinvestments created by the credit boom. Projects that were undertaken have to go bankrupt, employees mistakenly hired must lose their jobs, and wages must fall. After the economy is clean of the bad investments induced by the central bank, growth can begin anew based on a realistic assessment of the future behavior of consumers. If the government wants to make the recovery process work faster, if, say, there is an election coming up, there are some things it can do. It can cut taxes, putting more wealth into private hands to fuel the recovery process. It can eliminate regulations, which inhibit private sector growth. It can cut spending and reduce the demand on credit markets. It can repeal anti-dumping laws and cut tariffs and quotas to allow consumers to buy imported goods at cheaper prices. Central banking also creates incentives towards inflationary monetary policies. It is not a coincidence that ever since the creation of the Federal Reserve System, the value of the dollar has declined 95%. The market did not make this happen. The culprit is the central bank whose institutional logic drives it towards an inflationary policy, just as a counterfeiter is driven to keep the printing presses running. Austrians would reform this in fundamental ways. Rothbardians advocate a return to a 100% gold coin standard, an end of fractional reserve commercial banking, and the abolition of the central bank, while Hayekians advocate a system where consumers select currencies from a variety of alternatives. Today, Austrian economics is on the upswing. Mises' works are read and discussed all over Western and Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, as well as Latin America and North Asia. But the new interest in America, where the insights of the Austrian school are even more sorely needed, is especially encouraging. The success of the Ludwig von Mises Institute is testimony to this new interest. 
The primary purpose of the Institute is to ensure that the Austrian school is a major force in the economic debate. To this end, we have cultivated and organized hundreds of professional economists, providing scholarly and popular outlets for their works, educated thousands of graduate students in Austrian theory, distributed millions of publications, and formed intellectual communities where these ideas thrive. Every year we have a summer instructional seminar on the Austrian school called the Mises University with a faculty of more than 25 and top-flight students from around the country and the world. We also hold academic conferences on theoretical and historical subjects, and the Institute's scholars are frequent participants at major professional meetings. The Mises Institute assists students and faculty at hundreds of colleges and universities. We have a program for visiting fellows to complete dissertations and for visiting scholars to pursue new research, as well as being a major center for graduate students. New books on the Austrian school appear every few months, and Austrians are writing for all the major scholarly journals. Misesian insights are presented in hundreds of economic classrooms all over the country, whereas just 20 years ago, no more than a dozen classrooms presented them. Austrians are the rising stars in the profession, the economists with the new ideas that attract students, the ones on the cutting edge with a pro-market and anti-statist orientation. Many of these scholars have been cultivated through the Mises Institute's academic conferences, publications, and teaching programs. With the Institute backing the Austrian school, tradition and constructive radicalism combined to create an attractive and intellectually vibrant alternative to conventional thought. The future of Austrian economics is bright, which bodes well for the future of liberty itself. For if we are to reverse the trends of statism in the century and reestablish a free market, the intellectual foundation must be the Austrian school. That is why Austrian economics matters. The Viability of the Gold Standard This speech was delivered at the Burton S. Blummard Gold Conference in San Mateo, California, September 14, 2002. In the 19th century, notes Murray and Rothbard, debates on monetary issues were highly public and intensely controversial. Do you favor the National Bank? The gold standard? Bimetallism? What's your opinion of the free silver movement? What is the most important, a highly liquid money that can prop up commodity prices, or a sound dollar that promotes thrift and discourages debt accumulation? Should the monetary system reward debtors or creditors? These were issues debated in the nation's newspapers, discussed in political meetings, and raged on in the streets. Every educated man had an opinion. Part of the reason is that, frankly, people were much better educated in those days. It is astonishing to imagine today, but average people had the mental equipment to enable them to understand these complicated issues, if not always to arrive at the right conclusions. The federal government had long been involved in money precisely because this is one of the first areas a government likes to get its grubby hands on when it takes power. The U.S. government was no exception, despite constitutional provisions that it would appear to restrict its monetary power. Matters are radically different today. It is very rare to ever see an article addressing the money question in the nation's newspapers. Debates and discussions are left to the academic journals or the self-published tracts of money cranks, with the major exception of the Austrian economists, who continue to believe that the money issue is both academically important and politically crucial. This is why the Mises Institute has been sponsoring research and writing on the gold standard and promoting an idea that most public intellectuals find absurdly anachronistic, that a gold standard is better than our current monetary system. What's more, we not only believe that the gold standard had a better record historically, we believe we ought to institute a gold standard right now. Even many libertarians find themselves mystified by our focus. 
Who cares about these arcane issues of monetary policy? What does it have to do with the fate of human liberty? Could we pick a policy agenda that is more unlikely to come about? Are we just gluttons for political failure? Why not trim our ambitions to political reality? It is true that not a soul in Washington, apart from our heroic congressman from Texas, Ron Paul, says a word about the gold standard. Even Alan Greenspan, who once wrote that freedom is inseparable from the gold standard, dreads being asked about the subject. To him, it is entirely theoretical with no practical import. In any case, he doesn't want people looking too closely at the kinds of things he does at the Fed any more than the Wizard of Oz wanted anyone to pull back the curtain. Most economists have no interest in the issue. What's more, the most influential economist of the last century, John Maynard Keynes, hated the gold standard with astonishing intensity, and he considered it his great accomplishment in life to have assisted in its destruction. Even to this day, his influence is immense, with most economists accepting the broad framework he laid out in his work and sharing his conviction that the worst thing that could befall any society is for the government to lose power to manage economic life. There are many objections to the conventional view on the gold standard, but let me respond to the point about realism. There are a lot of policies which seem unrealistic to promote. We can admit that there is little prospect the post office will be privatized anytime soon but that fact does not diminish our responsibility to push the idea. Nothing could be more obvious than admitting that private enterprise would do a better job of delivering letters than the government. But if no one says it, if people are not willing to state what is true again and again, all hope for change is lost. And sometimes, just stating what is true is enough to bring about change when conditions are ripe for it. In the debate on the post office, we have the added advantage of being able to point to a superior and very well-developed sector of private package and letter delivery. The reason it is thriving is due to loopholes in the law, which these companies exploit. If the letter statutes were repealed, I have no doubt that first-class letters would be delivered by private enterprise within days. That is precisely why the post office is so anxious to hold on to its legal privilege. In any case, as with the gold standard, it might be said that advocating privatization is politically unrealistic and therefore a waste of time. What's more, we might say that by continuing to harp on the issue, we only marginalize ourselves, proving that, once again, we are on the fringe. Again, I submit that there is no better way to assure that an issue will always be off the table than to stop talking about it. This applies to the gold standard, too. The case for radical monetary reform is as obvious as the need to sell the post office. Every year or 18 months, the world goes through some sort of monetary convulsion. In the last 10 years, we've seen it in Mexico, all throughout Asia, and now Latin America. To one degree or another, there are few problems of international economics not traceable to the grave limitations of a world fiat money system. That includes the problem of the business cycle itself. In the 2001 and following economic downturn, unlike any I can remember, the Austrian theory of the trade cycle has received a fantastic amount of public commentary and attention. The core idea of this theory is that Fed-created credit is responsible for the boom and bust, and it has been embraced by top economists at some of the largest and most prestigious investment houses. The Mises Institute has done a fine job of getting the word out about the true cause of the business cycle, but the real reason it is getting such attention is that it provides such a compelling explanation of the 1990s bubble and the later crisis. Neither do most of these economists doubt that financial bubbles would not be a problem under the gold standard, even if they believe the gold standard introduces problems of its own. Far from being an arcane and anachronistic issue, then, 
we can see that the gold standard and the issues it raises get right to the heart of the current debate concerning the future of the world economy and its reform. What the critics who denounce gold are really saying is that the government and its friends don't like the idea of the gold standard, so therefore they are not going to favor one. Why do government and its partisans dislike the gold standard? It removes the discretionary power of the Fed by placing severe limits on the ability of the central bank to inflate the money supply. Without that discretionary power, the government has far fewer tools of central planning at its disposal. Government can regulate, which is the function of the police power. It can tax, which involves taking people's property. And it can spend, which means redistributing other people's property. But its activities in the financial area are radically curbed. Think of your state and local governments. They tax and spend. They manipulate and intervene. As with all governments from the beginning of time, they generally retard social progress and muck things up as much as possible. What they do not do, however, is run huge deficits, accumulate trillions in debt, reduce the value of money, bail out foreign governments, provide endless credits to failing enterprises, administer hugely expensive and destructive social insurance schemes, or bring about immense swings in business activity. State and local governments are awful, and they must be relentlessly checked. They are not anything like the threat of the federal government. Neither are they as arrogant and convinced of their own infallibility and indispensability. They lack the aura of invincibility that the central government enjoys. Why is this? You might say it is because the federal government already does these things, but no government has ever been troubled by the prospect of providing redundant services. You might say that state-level constitutions restrict their activities, but our experience with the federal government demonstrates that constitutions can't restrain a government by themselves. The main reason, I believe, is that the state and local governments do not issue their own currencies controlled by central banks. It is the central bank, and only the central bank, that works as the government's money machine, and this makes all the difference. Now, it is not impossible that a central bank can exist alongside a gold standard, a lender of last resort that avoids the temptation to destroy that which restrains it. In the same way, it is possible for someone with an insatiable appetite to sit at a banquet table of delicious food and not eat. Let's just say that the existence of a central bank introduces an occasion of sin for the government. That is why, under the best gold standard, there would be no central bank, gold coins would circulate as freely as their substitutes, and rules against fraud and theft would prohibit banks from pyramiding credit on top of demand deposits. As long as we are constructing the perfect system, all coinage would be private. Banks would be treated as businesses, no special privileges, no promises of bailouts, no subsidized insurance, and no connection to government at any level. This is the free market system of monetary management which means turning over the institution of money entirely to the market economy. As with any institution in a free society, it is not imposed from above, dictated by a group of experts, but is the de facto result that comes about in a society that consistently respects private property rights and encourages enterprise. Money is not something chosen by social managers, but the consequence of economic development as society moves from barter to indirect exchange. One commodity that is widely in demand comes to operate as a medium of exchange, a commodity for which any good or service can be traded with the expectation that this commodity will be demanded by others in future exchanges. Precious metals, gold in particular, have traditionally served as the money of choice. As Rothbard explained, the institutions we call banks serve a dual function in the free market system. First, they provide safekeeping for one's money 
and offer money substitutes that they certify really do represent money in the vault. And second, they provide credit services both to savers who would like to see money risked in the loan markets and to borrowers who need cash for purposes of consumption or investment. The banks work as brokers between these parties to affect mutually beneficial exchanges. If any market-chosen commodity can perform the function of money, why are we Austro-Libertarians focused on gold? It is often said that we have an obsession with gold and a fixation on the subject of money. To some degree, however, this alleged obsession has been shared by popular culture and by financial markets as a continuing testimony to the power of the idea of gold as a guarantor of value. Whenever a writer wants to convey the idea that something sets the highest standard, he refers to it as the gold standard. I was amused the other day to read in the London Daily Telegraph an article on grade inflation in British schools in which the writer counterpoised the grading gold standard of the past. The metaphor seemed quite apt. As for financial markets, events this year have again underscored the underlying obsession, if you want to call it that, that the world's financial markets have with gold. It is not a coincidence that gold mining stocks were the best performing during the bust period of this business cycle. And earlier this summer, we saw spot prices of gold begin to move very rapidly in response to the growing perception that the financial sector was far from bottoming out. Try as it might, the establishment just can't seem to crush the perception that gold is more reliable than government's paper money. Indeed, gold continues to be seen as a standard of soundness, as the commodity to free to in times of emergency, as the last store of value that can be counted on. Neither of these emergencies are known in the modern world. In Latin America this summer, we witnessed governments prohibiting withdrawals from banks during financial crises, just as we saw in the early days of the Great Depression in the United States. Gold continues to be perceived as a safe haven from the wiles of political opportunism and violence. J. Bradford DeLong, former assistant U.S. Treasury Secretary, wrote the following just the other day. Quote, Eighty years ago, John Maynard Keynes argued that governments needed to take responsibility for maintaining full employment and price stability, that the pre-World War I gold standard had not been the golden age people thought it was, and that its successes were the result of a lucky combination of circumstances unlikely to be repeated. Keynes was an optimist in believing that government could learn to manage the business cycle. DeLong continues to point out that the record of post-gold currencies has been a disaster as compared with their promise. In this respect, fiat currency is much in common with socialism. They both failed to live up to their promises, and indeed failed miserably by every standard, but they both long outlived their failures simply because political elites had too much invested in them to change the system and the intellectual class worked overtime to shore up support for the failed system. Eventually, of course, full-blown socialism collapsed, just as I believe that fiat currency systems will. Murray Rothbard has written, It might be thought that the mix of government and money is too far gone, too pervasive in the economic system, too inextricably bound up in the economy to be eliminated without economic destruction. In truth, taking back our money would be relatively simple and straightforward, much less difficult than the daunting task of denationalizing and decommunizing the communist countries of Eastern Europe and the former Soviet Union, unquote. And for all the reasons that gold eventually emerges the money of choice thousands of years ago, it continues to have the properties to make it the best money of choice today. It is portable, divisible, fungible, durable, and has a high rate of value per unit of weight. It is compatible with today's economy, driven by information technology and lightning-quick financial transactions, as it was compatible with the 19th-century economy of every industry and agriculture. 
It is not technical limitations that prevent the dollar from being redefined as a unit weight of gold, but political ones. The monetary benefits of a gold standard are clear enough, and they include life without inflation, an end to the business cycle, rational economic calculation and accounting and international trade, an encouragement to savings, and a dethroning of the government-connected financial elite. But it is also political considerations that draw people to support the gold standard. Gold limits the power of the state and puts power back in the hands of the people. Once you begin to understand the role of the monetary regime in the building of the modern statist enterprise, providing the means of funding for the entire welfare warfare state, in generating financial instability, in destroying savings, and undermining living standards, you realize that there is far too little interest in the subject in the mainstream press. You begin to realize that the 19th century focus on the money issue was entirely appropriate. Once having read Mises or Rothbard or any number of great monetary theorists, you begin to realize that understanding the monetary regime is the key that unlocks the mysteries of political control in our time. The Fed was created not to scientifically manage the economy, as the journals claimed at the time, but because it met the institutional needs of both the government and the banking industry. The government sought a means of finance that didn't depend on taxation, and the banking industry sought what Rothbard called a cartelization device. That is to say, the banking industry was seeking some way to prevent competitive pressures between banks from limiting their ability to expand credit. Well, the central bank fit the bill. A central bank managing a currency that is not tied to anything real fits the bill even better. If a little power to inflate is good for the government and its connected banking and financial interests, a lot of power to inflate is even better. For this reason, it was very likely that the gold standard could not have survived the creation of a central bank, and for the same reason, the creation of a new gold standard will have to do away with the central bank that would always threaten to bring it down. The power to create fiat money is the most ominous power ever bestowed on any human being. The power is rightly criminalized when it is exercised by private individuals, and even today everybody knows why counterfeiting is wrong and knavish. Far fewer are aware of the role of the federal government, the Fed, and the fiat dollar in making possible the largest counterfeiting operation in human history, which is called the world dollar standard. Fewer still understand the connection between this officially sanctioned criminality and the business cycle, the rise and collapse of the stock market, and the continued erosion of the value of the dollar. In fact, a sizable percentage of even educated adults would be astounded to discover that the Federal Reserve does more than manage the nation's money accounts. In fact, its main activity consists in actually creating money that distorts production and creates inflation in the business cycle. In fact, I would go further to suggest that many educated adults believe that gold continues to serve as the ultimate backing of our monetary system and would be astonished to discover that our money is backed by nothing but more of itself. We have our work cut out for us, to be sure, mainly at the educational level. We must continue to state the obvious at every opportunity. The fiat system is exactly what it is, a system of paper money backed by nothing of real value. We must continue to point out, because of this, our economic system is not depression-proof, but rather highly vulnerable to complete meltdown. We must continue to draw attention to the only long-term solution, a complete separation of money and state based on the commodity that the market has always chosen as money, namely gold. Apart from making the intellectual case, the biggest obstacle we currently face is that most all theoretically viable plans for radical monetary reform depend heavily on those who are currently in charge of mismanaging our money as being the ones to manage a transition. 
In many ways, this is akin to expecting the Politburo to have instituted a free market economy in Russia before the great counter-revolution. Can we really expect that Alan Greenspan is going to wake up one day and decide to do the right thing? It's possible, but I seriously doubt it. I recognize that this problem is a real one, but it is no different from the rest of the practical problems of instituting freedom. When we call for spending cuts, we are implicitly calling on Congress to do something that is against its self-interest. When we call for deregulating financial markets, we are expecting the SEC to do the very thing it is least likely to do from a bureaucratic pressure group perspective. And when we call for sound money, we are similarly expecting those who currently benefit from the present system to have a change of heart and mind and to act against their own interests. This takes us back to our original question. Is the gold standard history? Is it so preposterously unrealistic to advocate it that we might as well move on to other things? It won't surprise you that my answer is no. If there is one thing that a long-term view of politics teaches, it is that only the long-term really matters. Back in 1997-98, you were considered a crabby kook and behind the times to warn that the bull market in tech stocks could not last. But economic law intervened, and fashions changed. Back in those days, too, had you suggested that the business cycle had not been repealed, you would have been dismissed out of hand. But economic law intervened. In the same way, there will come a time when the current money and banking system, living off credit created by a fiat money system, will be stretched beyond the limit. When it happens, attitudes will turn on a dime. No advocate of the gold standard looks forward to the crisis, nor to the human suffering that will come with it. We do, however, look forward to the reassertion of economic law in the field of money and banking. When it becomes incredibly obvious that something drastic must replace the current system, new attention will be paid to the voices that have long cast dispersions on the current system and called for the restoration of sound money. Must a crisis lead to monetary reforms that we will like? Not necessarily, and for that matter, a crisis is not a necessary precursor to radical reform. As Mises himself used to emphasize, political history has no preordained course. Everything depends on the ideas that people hold about fundamental issues of human freedom and the place of government. Under the right conditions, I have no doubt that a gold standard can be completely restored no matter how unfavorable the current, the current environment appears towards its restoration. What is essential for us today is to continue the research, the writing, the advocacy for sound money, for a dollar that is as good as gold, for a monetary system that is separate from the state. It is a beautiful vision indeed, one in which the people and not the government and its connected interest groups maintain control of their money and its safekeeping. What has been true for hundreds of years remains true today. The clearest path to the restoration of economic health is the free market undergirded by a sound monetary system. The clearest path towards economic destruction is for us to stop working towards what is right and true.